You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and welcome to the show, journalist and author, MJ Simpson. Welcome. Thank you, Stuart. It's a pleasure to be here. Indeed. And your pretense of this being the first time recording is very valued, but I'm going to come clean for the uh, for the purposes of the show. <laughs> this is our take two. Um, a take two which is all down to me and nothing to do with technology or or whatever, but we live to fight another day, and we are going to talk first about your book, 21st Century British Horror Films, Volume 1, Dog Soldiers in Dog Houses, 2000 to 2011. At least I got to correct that error this time. <laughs> yes, you're not, not 2001, like you said on the first take. We had to stop the whole thing, listeners. It was awful. <laughs> so... Why a book about this period? What inspired you to begin a drill down into British horror movies over such a specific period? Um, so this uh, this covers 2000 to 2012, 2011, and it's it's the first of three volumes, which between them will cover uh, all the British horror films released between January 2000 and December 2019. Um, and, and my interest in, in what I call the British horror revival um, stems from the 90s, late, mid to late 90s, when I was uh, part of the editorial team on SFX for its first three years. And there was nothing being made in this company in terms of horror movies uh, in the mid-90s. It was real doldrums. And then a few interesting films started to pop through uh, at, uh, towards the late 90s. And they were interesting because they were very distinctively a new subgenre, um, social realism horror. And this is things like I Zombie, The Chronicles of Pain, Urban Ghost Story, Darklands. And I thought, this is interesting. This is this is a new cinematic subgenre. I'm in on the ground floor here. Um, and I, I wrote a lot of stuff about it for SFX and, and various other mags after I left there. And um, sometime in the noughties, I thought, you know what? I should probably make a list. I should probably keep track of these things because a few more things coming out now. And so I started building a list and I had no idea it was going to uh, expand the way it has done. And there's a um, a bar chart in the introduction to my book showing the number of films released each year, feature-length British horror films. And for the past few years, it's sort of 80 to 100 movies 
every year, which is just insane. So it's a it's a fast, largely untapped field of um, cinematic study. And um, you know, much as I love you know the old British horror films from, from what we might call the golden age, mid fifties mm. through to mid seventies, you know, I love a you know a freaky old hammer as much as the next person. But they've been done to death. There's so much has been written about those films and, and everything to find out about them has been found out. The people have all been interviewed hundreds of times and this is new stuff and it's new stuff that's happening with us. And it's also just the, the, the sheer volume. The, the bizarre thing is 80% of all British horror films have been made in the past 20 years. So really, uh, it, it needs its due um, and hence this uh, sort of three-volume oh, label. Hold, of hold, on a se- hold on a second, mate. Say that again. What's that statistic? 80% yeah. of all British horror films have been made in the past 20 years because this book and, and volume two and three, which are, are still to come, cover 1,050 films. Blimey. And blimey. in the 20th century, working from uh, my mate Darrell Buxton maintains the Path the Marmalade website, which is a sort of checklist of, of British horror films from yeah. the founding year onwards. And in the 20th century, I went through Darrell's site and I reckon there's about 250 films got made in this, horror films got made in this country uh, in the uh, uh, 20th century. So you've got 250 there, you've got 1,000 here. So the ratio is 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 four to one. No, the figures um, don't lie, do they? <laughs> don't argue with the math, Stuart. No, no, no. So in the first yeah. volume, there are 316 m- movies that you 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 review. Um, from Blockbusters to Backyard Obscurities, as you subtitle your book. Um, and in it, people will find the... Um, I guess what you would call um, the sort of new wave of British horror, which was sort of champion in the early noughties, your kind of Neil Marshalls, your Chris Smith and the like. But, um, and this is me harking back to our original take, which which is my fault we've lost. There, there's a there's a filmmaker which you, because I, I asked you what, you know, what sort of stands out in terms of what you discovered through this deep dive into like one specific uh, aspect of British cinema. And you mentioned a guy called Jason... Jason Impey. Jason Impey. So do you want to just give, give us a, for the purposes of the listener and for me, a recap on on who he is and why you think he's a, an important person for people to, to pay attention to? I, I think Jason is, is fascinating. He's uh, uh, is a, He uh, grew up in Northampton. He's in Milton Keynes now, if I've got that right. And he's entirely self-taught. I mean, he started when he was, was very young just making his own little backyard, little zombie films. And... Um, He's part of, of, of an entirely new generation, post-VHS, uh, not bothered about a theatrical release. He's making his own films, and he, he's one of those people who makes so much that he can't help but get better over time. So his early films are fun and tend to have uh, you know, zombies or psychos and lots of blood, and, they're, you know, and you go, hang on, that's your dad's back garden again. Um, but as he got older and, and, and matured, and you know, he's, he's got kids now, um, he became... Uh, he started exploring some very, very dark areas. And some of his films are really transgressive and subversive. And, and if you like uh, some of that really, really dark, dangerous, nasty horror, uh, which I don't always like, but Jason's stuff is interesting because it's, it's imagine if Jim Van Beber was making films in Northampton. You know, it, it's that contrast of... Uh, the, the the domestic, and you go, oh, that's just, that's just Northampton, that's just Milton Keynes, with these really, really dark films. I mean, they still cost about 50 quid, <laughs> but there's a, there's, a, there's, there's a real punk ethic 
to it. You know, there's a real independent getting out, making these films. And I say he's got better over the years. Um, I'm not. You, know, you could pick a random J- Jason Inby film. It might be, <laughs> be one of his. It might be rubbish. It might be great. I, you know, he made a lot of stuff. But as a filmmaker, I think he really um, exemplifies the the new wave of British horror. That's, it's, it's great to hear a name that that I've not heard of before, so I can I can follow up on that in the, in the coming months. Uh, it's one of the main reasons why I even do the podcast is so that I can I can find out these new things because you cannot be everywhere, you cannot be omnipresent. There is, it's it's the work of people like yourself that that helps to shine a light on things. And and one of the things that makes me think about the work the work you're doing is, and I'll just to repeat the reference is. Uh, it feels like you're like the like the John Peel of uh, of horror critics. Well, you're not the first person uh, to compare me to John Peel, and it's a very fluttering uh, comparison which I'll take. And and yeah, he he was a guy who was always interested in what's new, what's the latest thing, and and it didn't stop him appreciating older stuff as well. I mean, he used to say his favourite uh, song was uh, was Teenage Kicks. So um, I have the same sort of idea. I, I I'm very interested in, in what's breaking, what's new, what have people not found out about. Uh, yet it doesn't mean I don't enjoy, I say something, you know, some of the old hammers and so on. But this is such fertile ground, and there's so much of it out there. Um, and you know, it, it's virgin territory in terms of, of cinematic uh, writing. You know, mm. it's very easy. A, a lot of these films in this book, nobody's written about them before. You know, you might have a couple of one-line reviews on the IMDb of people going worst movie ever. But in terms of actually, what is this film? What's it about? Who made it? Why and how? This is uh, this is new stuff, and I, and I I love doing that. Now, um, what one of the films that I, I look I look for films obviously that that I, that I adore as much as anything else in terms of um, to see what your opinion was of them, and and uh, two that are close to my heart because I'm lucky enough now to be working with one of the producers off off both of them. Is um, is Dog Soldiers and the Descent, and Dog Soldiers has the motif of the Squaddy, which I'm now we're acting with the knowledge of our previous conversation. But do you want to uh, sort of expand on why the British Squaddy is such an important trope or a or a trope that says this is a British horror film? It's, it's one of the distinctive things of British horror, and you see it time and time again: fighting werewolves, fighting zombies, uh, or, or to, the, the British Squaddy. Is, and it goes, it, it, it's a motif of British horror, and it goes right back uh, to, to some really early stuff, and, and uh, it ties in with the, you know, with Unit in the in the 1970s Doctor Who stories. It's, um, and it's it's very much a British response to the threat. So the American response in an American big movie is, there's a monster, let's drop an atom bomb on it. Mm. And the British response is, right, let's get a squad of twenty fellows together, give them some Bren guns, and go give Johnny Zombie what for. Um, and Dog Soldiers really is, is sort of the ultimate squaddy film. It, it's very interesting that its its influences are not so much horror movies. They're war movies and action movies. It's Assault on Precinct 13. It's Zulu, um, but transposed into the horror genre. Indeed, indeed. And then and then shifting forward a few years to de- to the Descent, which arguably as as uh... As, as as that ghost podcast we recorded established one of the best horror films of the 21st century because you can read it many ways. So, do you, I mean, do you want to sort of... It's, yeah, The Descent for me is, is pretty much the perfect horror film. 
Um, I, th- I would say of these thousand odd films uh, that have covered out three books, that is probably the single best one. I've had to, had to pick out one. And it's it's one of the best British horror films ever made. It It's pretty much perfect. The, the direction, the lighting, the production design, the music, the casting and, and so on. And one of the reasons I like it is the ambiguity hmm. that um, you've got these crawlers, but are they real or are they in her head? Because our, our, our main character, and I can't actually remember which what the name of the one is left at the end is, but the, the, the last shot, provided you're watching the British cut, of course, they cut this off the American version, it basically focuses in on her and she's thinking about her daughter and it, it, zo- it, it zooms in and it's... But right at the end, before the credits roll, we're inside her head. Now, where in that film did we go inside her head? When did things start going crazy? Because you could interpret it that if she's gone crazy early on, actually she's killing her friends and the crawlers are, are, are in her head being blamed for it. Um, and there's, e- there's even a shot right early on in the prologue in the hospital where you see all the lights turning off in the corridor and you think, well, that's a bit weird. And it's momentary, but I, I, there's an argument for... Actually, it could be that the horror of, of the, the boating accident in the prologue and, and the, 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 the husband and so on, that, that actually that's what sent a loco and the whole thing's in her head. There's so much to debate in there. And it is also very scary. Um, and, and also, I think it's, it's very impressive that you've got six very attractive actresses wearing skin tight clothing, but they're not objectified. In any way, you know, there's, there's other films I've seen where it's like, hey, we've got these actresses, let's get them into their underwear or let's just get them as muddy as possible. But actually, um, Neil Marshall avoids objectifying the women and just makes them six fascinating characters in a very powerful action stroke horror film. Mm. And it's almost like it, it kind of you, you, you use a lovely alliteration in your, in your review in the book, Cave-Ins, Confusion and Crawlers. Um, but it is I love that, that alliteration. I like a bit of alliteration in my writing, Stuart. <laughs> but it is, but it is that kind of. It is a film that 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 is in phases, and and those phases are no less more horrific. They just get more scary. Oh, absolutely! Each time, you know, it starts when they're just going in, and you just go, "Why would why would anybody go potholing? You know, you're you're in the Appalachian Mountains. Go bird watching. It's lovely." <laughs> and I was like, "No, we're going to climb down here." And then people don't know where, you know, oh, we're not in the caves we thought we were. And now there's a, a, a cave in. And now there's these things hunting us. It, it ramps it up level after level after level. And that's, that's so powerful. And, and so few films are able to manage that. Uh, there's a filmmaker in there that, that, that I think, while, while he's probably much more high profile than, um, than Jason Impey, who you, you highlight, <laughs> um, I think he doesn't get the dues that I think he's due, is uh, Simon Rumley. Um, and you, your, 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 I picked a sentence out of your Red, White, and Blue review, which is a film that I did a, I did a complete making of with him as a two-part podcast. Um, it's such, I just thought it was such a brilliant film, and your description of a slow, intense build-up tips over into a third act of astonishing brutality. I mean, it, there's a moment in that film where the horror of a blood test result is like a punch in the gut. Never mind the violence of anybody's hammer hitting somebody. Oh, Absolutely. And, it, you know, that's a film about real people in the real world. So we're getting away from the, you know, the, the are they, aren't they callers or the, they definitely are werewolves. Mm. Um, I've known Simon 
for many years. His very, very first ever film was a, 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 a very curious thing called Strong Language, which I reviewed in a column I used to write very early issues of Total Film. And then I, uh, he sent me a copy. And then when it came out on DVD, it had my quote on. And the first quote I ever had on a DVD was on Simon Romney's first oh, that's film. Nice. So, so the, it was, and and so followed him since then. And he made this wonderful film, The Living and the Dead, which mm. is it's just this amazing three-hander with Roger Lloyd Pack in it. Um, and then Red, White and Blue, which is one of those films where, is it American, is it British? It's set in America, it's filmed in America, but it's made by a British filmmaker with some British funding. And, and I, I it, it, there's a lot of films where you think, should I include it, should I not? And I really wanted to include it. Um, so I, I, I decided, yes, that's, that's British enough for me. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a real punch in the gut. Um, and it is, it, there's a, a number of films where you, you, you know it's going to be a horror film. So you're prepared to sit through all the characterization and plot because you can see this is going somewhere. And, and there are films where they'll go, well, we'll start off by having somebody stabbed or somebody's head bitten off, or whatever. That's fair enough. That's, that's one way of doing it. But I, I like a film where it builds up and it builds up and then you get to the third act and they go, right, get the fake blood ready because here we go. Mm. But, uh, but also in that, in that astonishing brutality, the, the sort of, the denouement, as it were, is the kind of microcosm of the vagaries of war. Oh yeah, which it's, is which is a, just an, an amazing sort of sleight of hand in the film because it's there, it's hiding in plain sight. Absolutely, it, it's a it's a film where if you watch it again, and I've got to admit, I very rarely rewatch films because I've got so many other ones ready to be watched. But but I can see that if you watch that again, with the knowledge of where it's going, it'll be something different. Um. It's a very skillfully constructed story um, and it's doing something very different and it's exploring relationships as indeed, you know, the living and the dead does. And Simon's done a lot of films that aren't horror as, uh, as well, but he's very good at exploring the, the horror of uh, twisted relationships. Now, um, where can where can Pete? How can people get hold of Twenty First Century British Horror Films Volume One? This is self published because, by God, it's a bit bloody niche. Um, so um, I, I've got my own website, mjsimpson.bigcartel.com, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's the only place you can order it. Uh, so you won't find it on Amazon. Uh, it's a very limited run of these books. Um, so, uh, I'm selling them personally. They're all, uh, signed and numbered and, um, it's, it's 20 quid plus postage, but in a, in a unique offer, if you wrote, directed, produced, or starred in any of the films in this book, I will waive the postage costs and you can get it for 20 quid instead of 23 quid. So you can't say fairer than that. No, you can't. You can't. And I'll put a link in the show notes so people can just click on that without having to take notes. I think that's proven beyond all doubt that you're more than qualified to uh, to enter into my five great British uh, horrors horror film canon, and uh, and just 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 to say that your selection, while it is far, I should point out we're not trying to create consensus with five great British horror films. We want to we want to highlight five great films, and great being a word that. Is about is about as much about interesting as it is about great movies, and also it's about what's interesting to you as a guest coming on to talk about them. And there's you know, there's more reasons just simply this is the best film you'll ever see to talk about film, and hopefully we'll get onto that when we talk about we go through your five selections. Um, 
But what's interesting, and we'll see that as it unfolds, is that you've picked five, and obviously it's because we're doing the 20th century, but they really are sandwiched together over five five consecutive years, which for, for someone that's done over 20 of these shows, it's like it's not, where, I've, where I've got excited about someone picking one across five decades. Now I've got one pick, picking five over five years. That's just... Well, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I've, I've picked five from the book, so it covers a 12-year period because... Mm. Um, that's what I'm, I'm specialising in, and um, this this doesn't mean I don't enjoy the old stuff. And also, I'm not claiming these are the five quantitatively best films in the book. That the best films in the book would be things like Dog Soldiers, The Descent, Twenty Eight Days Later, Shaun of the Dead, uh, probably Eden Lake. I'd say those would be the five best films. But the what I've picked is five films that I think are terrific films that people have probably never heard of or certainly never seen. We're going to do five great British horror films with you. They, we're going to do them in reverse date order, oldest to newest. Um, I'll shout them out, and you can talk. You can talk about them, and I'll I'll chip in if if necessary. Um, we're going to do it against the clock as always. So five films, five minutes per film. So when when people hear the dulcet tones of, um, they'll know that's the five minutes are up. Does that seem like we're on we're on for a plan? So you're just going to throw the title at me and then I just ramble on for five minutes? Ramble on for five minutes. I might, I might pose a question while you're doing so, but yeah, we'll just, we'll, we'll, five minutes will pass and then we'll move on to the next film. But it's, you highlight it as you want, as you see fit, uh, why, why it's interesting, what makes it interesting, how, I mean, related back to the book, related to other films, it's, it's, it's why, why you think it's interesting, you know, that kind of thing. It's more yep. about why you enjoyed it and why you would pick it and what, you know. It's not, we're not trying to make this into a film studies podcast. It's more about the joy of film as much as anything else. So I'm, Absolutely. I'm, if you want right. to talk about why this relates to how you have your breakfast, then I'm all ears. Right. <laughs> Here we go. Eyes down for the You have to love it. You have to make it a certain way, bring it to life, and then you love it. And it can do like anything. Anything you think. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Papa's gonna buy you a mockingbird. And if that mockingbird. You're gonna come to the shop today. I'm going to go and make a big time. Indeed, indeed. So, 2007's Wish Baby is where we're going to start. So, five minutes are on. Wish Baby is a film that I thought would be a lot more significant than it was, um, but I hope people can find it. It's uh, produced by a guy named Simon Sprackling, and some people might go, oh, that's the bloke who did Funny Man back in the 90s, and uh, directed and written by, uh, the only feature directed and written by Stephen W. Parsons, who's normally a composer. And 
one of the reasons I like it is that it's got that that uh, social realism background. It's about a teenage uh, black girl living in a rather uh, scuzzy uh, tower block with her brother, who's a bit of a junkie, but he's trying to hold down a job. There's a, a pimp on the in the flood of stairs. It's not a particularly nice environment. It's very urban. But she meets, entirely by chance, this uh, very... Uh, faded gentility is the phrase that would apply to this, this uh, character, this, this uh, old white lady, played by the very wonderful Fenella Fielding. Yes, Absolutely. I was very surprised to see that. She's superb. And so you get this uh, interesting relationship between these, these two characters. And Fenella Fielding is slightly eccentric and he's pushing around a pram with this weird blue doll in it. And she explains it's a wish baby. And, and uh, the, the main character, Maxine, she uh, saves uh, Fenella Fielding's character from when she's being uh, uh, bothered by some, some youths. And those youths all come to messy ends via a supernatural character called the governess, uh, who is somehow uh, created by this wish baby. And uh, Maxine makes her own wish baby, um, and to take revenge on some of the people she doesn't like, like the pimp upstairs, like her social workers, one of whom is uh, played by the guy who was Nelson the Barman in um, uh, Ashes to Ashes. And um, it's really a Faustian tale. She, By creating the wish baby, she brings uh, the governess onto people she doesn't like, but can she control that? Um, it's an extraordinary film um, with this, this socialist background, but also this, this wonderful upper middle class uh, role for, for Fenella Fielding. Um, and the contrast is, is there. But at the same time, it's got this, this lovely uh, supernatural character who it, it's not that somebody turns up and hacks people to death. You're not really clear how she's killing the people she's killing, but she appears there and kills them. It's, it's almost there's a little bit of, sort of Sadako um, from, from J-Horror, but mm. in a very, very British sort of way. Um, and I, I, I'm, it's one of those films I can't understand why it's not better known. You know, it's got a couple of, it's got a few okay names in it. I mean, the, the lead actress, Tiana Benjamin, uh, she was in uh, EastEnders and, and uh, one of the Harry Potters. He's got uh, the rapper Doc Brown plays her brother. Um, it, it's a film that I think people should try because it's something very different and it is quite spooky. Yeah, that 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 um, I'm thinking of uh, Johnny Kevorkian's film of the the sort of haunting on the on the council estate that it disappeared. It disappeared, yeah, and um, yeah, it's, that, it's not. It, yeah, I can see how the two would would uh, would, uh, would. Well, that kind of just that taking that very kind of concretey urban environment and bringing the kind of wistfulness of supernatural and you know the old ye olde rural England and stuff and clashing those two things together. Absolutely. That's one of the things that, that I love about uh, so many of these films is that they're very British. Um, if they were made in another country, they would be significantly different because this is about Britain and, and, and British people um, looking at, you know, different uh, who, who may be very different in terms of the age and the race and the, the social background. Um, so you've got all that characterization there, but you've got this uh, fantastically spooky uh, story and the, the the baby itself doesn't really do anything. There's a couple of shots where it it, it moves with a bit of puppetry or something, but it's not a killer doll that comes to life. The, this weird blue doll is somehow creating this, you know, the governess, this very sort of stern um, nanny character who then somehow kills these people. Um, it's you know talking about it with you, uh, history makes me want to go and watch it again. <laughs> 
So what's what's Fenella Fielding's performance like then? Because obviously she's not she's no spring chicken at this point, is she? Yeah, and she's wonderful. She doesn't play it kooky. She's not you know Valeria Watt. Mm. Um, she plays like I say, you know, the, the phrase is faded gentility. She plays it as this out of slightly out of touch, but still with it mentally. Uh, probably a woman who's got this this bit of eccentricity and and uh, very very elegant. Um, and it's just no perfect. It really is. Um, and I say Stephen Parsons, the other interesting thing is this was passed by the BBFC 15 and Stephen Parsons went to the BBFC to complain and said, I think it should be an 18. And they bumped it up to 18. Is that right? Is that right? Well, there you go. You'll, no, you'll notice that was the sound of, uh, of Edgar Broughton Band telling us out, Demon's out. So moving swiftly along, we're going to uh, we're going to cover... Uh, a former guest of the podcast, Pat Higgins, who's uh, who's been on, um, and talk about his movie, The Devil's Music. So I've known Pat for a long time, and this was the fourth feature that he made. And he'd made three uh, kind of interesting uh, movies, Trash House, uh, Killer Killer and Hell Bride. And then The Devil's Music, it's it's um, uh, it's a mockumentary, uh, if you are. A mockumentary, hmm. if you will. A mockumentary. Um, yeah. Um, and it's about this, uh, this singer who's a bit of a sort of shock singer very controversial um and it's told through uh talking heads uh which kind of harks back to, to simon romney's uh, first film strong language that we mentioned and also some a little bit of a stage footage and also uh footage taken by a a fan that this character this this singer has taken on uh, and allowed to document behind the scenes uh of her tour and again it's it's very character driven in a way um and doesn't have obvious overt horror, but it's creeping. You can see it's it's going so on. And I like it, these sort of films, the ones that are constructed like this, because we don't know where it's going. But the characters do. The characters being interviewed in these talking heads, they're talking about this terrible, you know, awful thing that happened. And we're, we're sitting there thinking, what, what was this awful thing? And it builds up and it builds up. And then, again, there's an ambiguity. Um, it's very skillfully done Towards the end, um, you know, as with most of these films, I haven't actually watched them for a long time, and I, I, so I, I can't remember the precise details. But the nature of it is that something happens at the end that could be supernatural or could just be an amazing rock and roll publicity stunt. And you can interpret it either way. It's really not clear, and I always like ambiguity in, in my horror films. Um, it's just lovely construction um, using this di these disparate elements, uh, the lead, the, the singer Erica Spawn is played by uh, an actress called Victoria Hopkins, who's been in quite a few. I think she's Australian originally, but she's been in quite a few uh, British horror films. She's in uh, Zombie Women of Satan and, and a, a bunch of other things. Um, and and also the, the one of the lovely characters is the drummer ZC, uh, played by Al Ronald, who is uh, a cinematographer 
on uh, Pat's films and also directed his own movie, Jesus versus the Messiah, which is a very strange little film. Al's a, a great guy. I went to see Weird Al Yankovic in London and, and Al was in the queue next to me. That was a coincidence. <laughs> Sorry, I'm rambling now, aren't I? No. Um, well, I, what I like, what, what, what this, what I like about this is, is the, uh, is the, obviously the ongoing idea that somehow there's evil in music. And I love, I love it when, when somebody tries to sort of make the evil writ large as opposed to, you know, it's created by evil. But actually, if you bring the evil alive, then where do we go from there? That that's true, and, and and actually, yeah, there is a there is a small subgenre within these these films. There's, there's probably five or six that are based around um, rock and or roll, mm. and um, yeah, that, that, I, I hadn't really thought of that, but I could actually, you know, you could put a few of these um, together. There was uh, Dead Time, and I I saw one recently. I've got hold of a thing called Rock and Roll, fucking lovely. Um, Reverb, yes, uh, Aita Narusi's uh, yeah. film, set in a recording studio, absolutely. Yeah. So there is a little sub-subgenre. I, I love when you can identify sub-genres and sub-subgenres and, and start grouping these films together and seeing how they're exploring um, similar themes in different ways. Um, and Pat Higgins stuff, I, I think, I, mean, I, I love Pat, he's a great guy. I saw him uh, not too long ago for the first time in ages. We met up in, in Birmingham. Um, and he, he then he, he did two... Uh, him and Al Ronald and um, uh, a friend did uh, two films called Death Tales, Bordello Death Tales and Battlefield Death Tales. They got released as Nazi zombie death tales, which were anthologies. And he's now working on a, a thing called Power Tool Cheerleaders versus the Boy Band of the Screaming Dead. He is indeed. He is following up yeah, on the success of Strippers versus Werewolves. I was trying to avoid mentioning that because, um, yeah. Pat wrote the original script for Strippers vs. Werewolves. Do not blame him for the finished film. Fascinatingly awful though it is. <laughs> so, I mean, but Pat is very much part of the of this of the British horror horror movie circuit, oh, isn't he? A- absolutely. Um, even though it, there's uh, you know his, his films are mostly sort of clustered t- together at the front, and, and what he does now is he does really really great talks about how to ma- how to write films. He's, he's basically a, a jobbing screenwriter, um, one of those uh, people who, who's employed to write a lot of films which either don't get made or get made, but by then they've got somebody else's name on the film. So, right, then, well, that closes that chapter on The Devil's Music. Um, and now we're going to move swiftly along to 2009 for Resurrecting the Streetwalker. <laughs> It's like finding hidden treasure. Trying to make myself indispensable. Uh, street walker. I want you to get the materials together, report back to me what it's about, alright? Sure. I kind of regret the day I ever heard that title. There was there was a lot of work to be done just to rescue that film. He had this he had this glint in his eye. He wanted to produce, write, direct. But it's so close to being finished, it wouldn't take a lot of work. I think we should let sleeping dogs lie. Life is short and you only live once. <laughs> if I could dissuade him of what he did, obviously, I mean, I would do anything in my hands. To Luck is when opportunity meets preparedness. It doesn't exactly have an ending. Oh, fuck, didn't you tell me that before? Cannon became this really resentful person. I recommended to him that he ruled something. Who fucking put you in charge? This is my project. He entrusted it to me. He was obsessed with film. 
he really wanted to complete this project. It was like a life or death kind of situation. Her patient nearly died. Normally fucking died. Madness can take over. There's always a line. And after you cross that line, there's no way back. I will get this ending sorted. Who's locked get that fucking door open! This is the only film made by a, a Turkish-born uh, fellow named Ozgur Uyanik, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's resurrecting the Streetwalk. In that, that it's about a it's about a film called The Streetwalk. It's it's actually not dissimilar to The Devil's Music mm. in being a, 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 a mockumentary. In this case, about film. So it's uh, it's set in a a crappy little British production company, and it is far and away the most accurate portrayal of the British cinema industry in the 21st century that I've ever seen. You know, the British film production companies are one person with a a bit too much money, a bunch of people who aren't really very interested in it, but it's a job crammed into some crappy office just off Wardour Street. (laughs) And basically, most British production companies, you know, they go to the EFM, they go to the AFM, they go to Cannes, and eventually set up some sort of co-production deal and it might not happen and it's 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 not glamorous it's not it's not even particularly interesting it's it's just this weird dull but 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 then with this undertone of it is the film industry um and it's set in one of these offices and there's a young guy and he, he's he's a film enthusiast whereas a lot of the other people in the office are and he discovers in the basement the uh the reels of film from a 1980s horror movie that was notorious and didn't get finished because the uh, the director died and he said this is this legendary lost film i could edit these together shoot a few extra scenes using some some stand-ins and body doubles and a bit of dubbing and i could complete this film and he sets out to make the film and the film takes him over again there's no obvious monster or, or, or supernatural element to it but it's more than just a, a psychological thing. It's it's really not clear what's going on, but things are getting more and more horrible. And again, it's told through a mixture of talking heads um, and uh, uh, footage taken at the time, little video diary at the time, and, and clip, fake clips from this this fake film. And it gets darker and nastier, and it's really quite disturbing. Um, it's the the film that's a bit it's a bit like you've probably seen Barbarian Sound Studio. Yeah, but, uh, but, but uh, go on, sorry. It's it's the same sort of thing in that it's somebody so obsessed with the filmmaking process it starts to play with his awareness of reality and uh, starts to to really impinge on him. And I think the two would you know actually make a, a, an interesting comparison. It, 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 like I say, I've only seen the trailer in preparation for talking to yourself, but. It remind it, it it reminded me of um of or made me think of sorry, Theodore Rose Rosak's book Flicker. I don't know if you've read I'm that not one. Familiar with that one. Which is about a guy who begins an investigation into a lost B movie by the director Max Castle, and and he ends up getting lost in the film, like almost like a kind of Conrad's Heart of Darkness, but about the search mm. for the origins of a film. You're right. It, it is. It is the heart of darkness thing. It, it, you know, he, <laughs> he, he it, it, it takes him over in a in a very unhealthy way uh, that starts to uh, uh, affect the people around him. Um, it's extraordinarily powerful 
um, and, and disturbing film. And, and uh, I, I don't really know what Oscar Yannick has done before or since, but if you make just one film this this good, um, then uh, you know that's that's a, a great thing. And um, uh, just looking at this, one of the um, I think one of the actors in it was actually um, the guy from Deathline. Um, uh, yes, uh, Hugh Armstrong, who was the man, the man in Deathline, is the boss of this um, this fake film company in this. Gower Town, that's quite yeah, that's quite a connection <laughs> to the to a classic British horror. So, just to um, let people in on trade secrets, though, I mean, obviously, for the, these films, these films are released, but they're not always easy to get. So, how are you getting your hands on a film like? How is Resurrecting the Streetwalker coming to your attention when it does? It, it came out on DVD. It had a new British DVD release, um, mm -hmm. and I suppose out of print. You could probably pick it up on eBay if you if you keep your eye out. Um, so, yeah, because I have been doing this for twenty years, a lot of these films did come to me at the time from the distribution company or directly from the the, the filmmakers. One of the things I make clear in the book is uh, some bullet points at the end. Was it uh, available on DVD? Which countries did it come out? It doesn't go into massive detail, but I'll let you know if there was a DVD, a UK DVD release, and what year it was, um, or uh, overseas releases, or video on demand, or even if it had a theatrical release. So, because uh, I'm, I find distribution fascinating, mm. uh, and the, the multiplicity of distribution channels nowadays. There we go. I'm going to say IMDb is telling me I can watch it on Prime Video for 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 99p. So that's that's easy. This is flight engineer Lieutenant Brian Murphy, sole survivor of military evacuation flight. Lima, November 260. Our orders are to be at the roadblocks to stop the spread by shooting the infected. But I left to find my son. Are you beaten? No, I'm okay. You're American? I'm an engineer, a mechanic. I fix things. I'm just trying to survive. Get out! Moving swiftly along, sir, after uh, resurrecting the streetwalker. Thank you for that. 
Um, we're going to go to 2010's zombie piece, The Dead. And, uh, yes, just to pick up on, on, on the distribution thing, yes, a lot of these are on Amazon Prime, so uh, you know, keep an eye out for them. The Dead is, I think, a fantastic zombie film. And we, we all know that the zombie genre has been just, you know, milked. Um, and there are so many zombie fil- films out there. We used to have a, 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 there's a guy called Zombie Ed here in Leicester who used to run a, a, a one-day thing at the Phoenix Cinema of a zombie day. And I think that was where I saw The Dead. Um, and how do you do something new and different with a zombie film? And what um, uh, Howard Ford and his brother John Ford did was said, let's set it in Africa. It's in West Africa. I think they filmed it at Burkina Faso, I think they filmed it in. And... It gives it a whole new scope and a whole new idea. So the, the basic thing is that um, there, there's a, a something sort of zombie type plague type spreading across Africa. The main character is an American engineer. <laughs> he on the last plane out, and the plane uh, crashes on takeoff. He he survives, and he's now stuck on his own. And he he teams up with a, a local guy who's a soldier, and the two of them set out across the country and the, the zombies are traditional shuffling zombies but there's a lot of them and the setting is unique and, and what really makes it powerful is the socio-political undertones of, of this you know when you've got a white guy who is having to blast away with a gun at black people coming towards him well you you can't help but have all sorts of subtext there and then the the other guy the guy who's with him the black guy the soldier when he's shooting these, these, these African people around him. And, you know, there's tones there of, of the Rwandan genocide and Somalian civil war. And there's so much there, which harks back so much to, 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 um, to Night of the Living Dead. You know, Night of the Living Dead, one of the reasons why it's still so powerful is it's got a lot of that subtext and the racial tension. And, you know, Romero's films, or each of Romero's films was about society. Mm. And The Dead is about a very different part of society but it, it explores those same sort of ideas um yeah and brilliant and brilliantly um it uses that kind of hold on hope as being a major driving force so against all of you know obviously the world falling apart in terms of what what's up and what's up becoming down and down becoming up the central character his whole journey seems to be fueled by the idea of hope is at the end of this journey Oh yes, ab- absolutely, and it, it is. It is a journey. It's not just. And we, we're used to be to the journey being, you know, trying to get from Shepparton to the coast or something. But they're in the middle of West Africa. It's it's a very big open area, but they've got to somehow get to some sort of safety or civilization. It just puts a whole new spin on things. Um, and the the, the stories of, of the the film being made. The, the guy did produce an ebook. Uh, going into a lot of the making of, and half the team came down with malaria. It was just a, you know, a real, real effort to get this this film made, but it, it has produced a really powerful, fascinating, interesting zombie film, and we know that those are in a minority within the zombie genre, where a lot of the time it's just, you know, lot, zombie films are so formulaic so much of the time that it's a real joy to find one that is different. And they did a, a, make a sequel, of course, The, the Dead to India, uh, a new set of characters, but the same zombie plague, but set in, in India, um, you know, a, a few months later, um, which is also good, also worth seeking out. I was going to say, they uh, being Howard Ford and Jonathan Ford brothers, who were obviously award-winning adverti- uh, commercial directors, 
who uh, turn the hand to these two films. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, it's one of those films where you think, well, uh, I'm, I'm glad I saw that. It's, it makes you think about things. And, you know, I, I've got some films you watch and you just go, well, that was a whole load of fluff. It was great fluff, but it was fluff. And then you get <laughs> other films where you think, this this makes me wonder about stuff and think about stuff. And I, I like films where I think I'm very aware that the five films I picked are all quite serious films. And I want to make it clear, there are some people making good horror comedies out there as well. It's just that I, I, I didn't pick any when I, when I grabbed five titles out of the book. But um, The Dead... And you've got to, you know, give them kudos for coming up with, you know, one of the least Googleable film titles anybody's ever come up with. Um, nevertheless, is is a and rather, I don't know if you know, but obviously rather meta. Rob Freeman, who plays the lead in it, contracted malaria while shooting the movie, which yes, which is his yeah, own drama um, on top of the, you know, the film itself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, you could make a film about the making of the dead. Um, <laughs> by all accounts, it was, it was absolutely excitement. Yeah, no, it was it got the headlines for the wrong reasons as well as the right reasons. Um, so moving swiftly along as we do, um, another film that wasn't something wasn't one I'd heard of. Um, 2010's Harmony, Harmony's Requiem. In 2010, over one billion videos were watched online each day. People found entertainment in talented singers, loving pets. <laughs> and cute babies. When one man began uploading his trivial life, no one cared. However, he soon caught their attention. is a, a real sort of personal passion project of mine because uh, it was one of those things I had in my list. I had a, a title and a director, I called Mark McDermott, and a couple of one-line synopses you know, on the IMDb and on, on uh, British Council. Um, and uh, I'd found the trailer and that was it. And I thought it, it, it was a film that had just disappeared. The, the guy made it, he put it on his own website. Uh, his own website's long since gone. Yeah, there's a lot of these films that get, have been put online on websites that are no longer there. And so the film has vanished. A surprising number of actual lost films from within the 20, last 20 years. And I thought, how many Requiem sounds interesting? Well, I'll probably never see it. But I was writing a series of columns for Scream magazine 
um, which is kind of a very condensed version of, of, of what's in the book. And when I got to the, this bit, uh, Harmony's Reckoning, I said, you know, this is what I know about it. If anybody knows how I can see it, let me know. And a reader emailed me and said, I found an online version. And it was buried away in a thing called Amazon Studios. And you had to click a certain number of, of things, but it, it was it legitimately there and legitimately viewable. And I watched it and it was just an amazing film that probably hadn't been seen by anybody who didn't know the director personally. Um, and it's it's something that I, I normally stay away from found footage. I'm not a fan of found footage as a subgenre because it's often done so badly. It's like, hey, what if they put cameras everywhere in the building? You know, what if they did? But this, it's a, it uses that, that format. It's about uh, the central character who we never see is a, uh, a, a recluse who's obviously got mental health issues um, who can only view the world through his camera. You know, there's, there's a certain amount of peeping Tom in there. Um, and so he goes out in the world and he, he can't interact with people, but he does watch people through his camera. And, and mostly young ladies, it has to be said, but it's not, a, he's not, he's not, uh, you know, a, a stalking rapist. He's he's he, he does he's a very lonely guy who doesn't know how to interact with people, and he starts going into people's houses, and we follow him, and we never hear him say anything. Uh, we don't really know much about him, but we we see the world through him, and he's he's a lonely, pathetic character. There's, there's elements of the Hunchback of Notre Dame in there. There's elements of Phantom of the Opera in. Uh, you know, the, he's got this this uh, um, uh, hopeless love. Um, and there's a, there's a really audacious little bit in it. Where, um, you know, I like films that, that, that surprise you, where he gets beaten up by some people who steal his camera. And for about 15 minutes of the film, the main character isn't in it. It's these other people passing the camera around between them at a party until he comes back. He's tracked him down and he beats him and gets his camera back. So so the whole thing, it's, 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 it's I am a camera, literally. Um, and I, I, I was just gobsmacked watching this film. And, and um, so I wrote this very long review on my website. My website's still out there, mjsimpson-films.blogspot.com. Um, just Google my name, you'll find it. Very long uh, review. And and I managed to track down Mark McDermott. He, um, he, he like me, he works in um, uh, higher education, marketing and communications, uh, except I'm at Leicester and he's at Oxford. So he's a little bit above me there. And I, I, I managed to, I'm very good at tracking people down. Uh, on the internet, and uh, he said, "Yeah," I, and we we got talking, and uh, he was he was so pleased with with that that he got a little piece in the local paper, um, and now the film's on Amazon Prime, and and people can watch it. And I've infused to a couple of people I know with with DVD labels, hoping that this will eventually get some sort of proper release. It's it's a perfect example of one of those films that nobody's heard of. I mean, it had one cast and crew screening, and then I say it was on the guy's personal website. And that was it. So nobody knew about this film. And also, that's one of the reasons why I keep my checklist and why I wrote this book, because it would be very easy for this to have just vanished completely. You know, as I said, there's a bunch of, of, of films here that there are a few that I just haven't been able to get hold of at all, haven't been able to track down anyway. But I know they did exist and they did. They, they were on somebody's website or they were on a DVD that was sold through somebody's MySpace page. Um, and I think it's important to keep a record of these films so that they don't disappear completely. No, no, I think you're right. I think I think with in a, in a, in a world of um, I guess oversupply and under demand because products are so much easier to make as you pointed out yourself. Mm. We've we've managed to produce eight percent of British horror films in the last twenty years. Um, it's easy for 
some of it for for not always the right reasons for it to disappear off the radar. So there's there's an important job going on here, which I hadn't considered when when I first started. The, the sort of when I first made the inquiry about you coming on, but the idea of cataloging and archiving in it, much in the same way as your, your psycho, what's uh, it called, psycho, psycho. No, oh, forgot the name. Um, psychotronic video, yeah, yeah, psychotronic video in the way that it it, it provided archive. And I, mean, I used to I used to uh, read Head Press, and Head Press put out mm. um, a they had a thing called Psychotropedia, which was a catalogue of underground publications. You know, nobody there wasn't there wasn't an internet yeah. when that came out, and it was and those kind of archiving. Even if you never get hold of it, the, there's a footnote there that reminds you that you can't that it was there and it can be found somewhere. Absolutely. Part of me just wants these things to be recorded because one of the big differences between 20th century and 21st century films is that it, once you go back to 20th century, there's everything is getting a proper personal release. Um, can I carry on the, the sentence? We yes, you can. Yes, please. Uh, please, uh, we're, yes. we're, we're like masterminds. Yeah. Everything used to get a, a proper commercial release, so it was listed there. You can look at back copies of Screen International, uh, or sight and sound, and you say, these are the films that got made and got released. But nowadays, as I, as I touched on before, there's so many distribution channels, there is no single place where you can read about you know, a list, an industry list of all the films that get made. A lot of them are being made by individual filmmakers. They're, they're independent films, and sometimes they are you know, literally made in people's backyards. But they end up on Amazon Prime, uh, or on you know Vimeo on demand or whatever, that's you know that's the same effectively as James Bond or Harry Potter. It's still a film that you're paying money to see, and there's, there needs to be some sort of record of these things because particularly the ones that are available video on demand. So there isn't even a physical DVD that might turn up on on eBay in a few years' time. These things can just vanish in a puff of smoke, and there's there's so many ways things can get. Uh, get released and so many places as well. One of the things I, I love, I say I put the, the distribution details at the end of the, the reviews, you get these sort of British films that have only been released in Greece and Thailand. And 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 you just think that, that, you know it's a British film, but it just nobody has could be ever released it. But somebody in Greece went, yes, we'll have that. And and you know sometimes I just go to things like you know Amazon.jp and go, crikey, that thing's come out in Japan. And, well, there's and, there's, yeah. a, there's a there's a there's a sales agent that's earned their coin then if they've managed to sell it in that territory. Absolutely, there's all sorts of because people go to the, the American film market, the European film market, and the Cannes film market. And uh, I went to the AFM once, and I went to Cannes once, and there's all these people doing all these deals um, for product that will end up on TV channels or, or, or cable channels or, or, or DVD releases all over the world. Um, and it's 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 quite extraordinary. So a lot of British films don't come out in Britain. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's remind people then of your five, and we'll put links in the show notes to both uh, your blogs, the blog reviews you've got of it, and your blog in general. Uh, so we've got Wish Baby, The Devil's Music, Resurrecting the Streetwalker, The Dead, and Harmony's Requiem. And um, there you are. And those films are are covered in uh, M.J. Simpson's book, 21st Century British Horror Films, Volume 1, Dog Soldiers and Dog Houses, 2000 to 2011. Reviews of 316 movies from blockbusters to backyard obscurities. And it just gives me to say, thank you very much for A, your patience, (laughs) and B, your time on the BritFlix podcast. 
it's been an absolute pleasure, Stuart, because apart from anything else, I so rarely get to actually discuss these things with people. I write about them, but I'm, I'm sat here in Leicester and it's just nice to be able to talk through it with somebody, particularly at the moment, obviously, we're recording this during the coronavirus crisis. But just in general, it's so rare to, to actually be able for me to, to get up on my soapbox and go on about it. So thank you very much for, for giving me an airing here. Indeed. Well, look, well, when Volume 2 and Volume 3 hit the uh, hit the presses, then please give us a nudge and we'll uh, we'll cover that period. Of, we'll, cover the, we'll get five from those books as well. Each of those is only going to cover four years, so they're going to be even more compressed. Well, that's that's not a problem to me. I think if you can if you can shine a light on films that people won't have heard of, uh, I think that'll be a fun reason to get together again. Absolutely, I look forward to it. Thank you very much, Stuart. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.